0: Silent prayer for you to use 1 John 1 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to gather together this evening, to fellowship around the teaching of Your Word, to focus on that which is eternal in value and that which You use to mature us spiritually and to sanctify us. Father, we pray that You would challenge us with the things we study this evening and that the Holy Spirit will use them to increase our maturity and accelerate our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 12. We'll continue with our study of God's call of Abraham and Abraham's response. Though so technically at this point he's still Avram. Avram and Ur of the Chaldees. Now last time I focused on the first part of the mandate given in 12.1 where we read that the Lord had said to Avram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. So the command here is to leave, to go, to get out. It is a cal uh, imperative uh, in an intensified form, meaning to get yourself out. Now, there's three things that are said here. He is to first of all leave his country. His country is in Ur of the Chaldees, and this is uh, the center of Sumerian culture. Ancient Sumer was the center of a worship of the moon god and various astral figures, so astrology figured in very much to what they were doing. But you have an excellent example of, of pagan, polytheistic paganism. Operating in Ur the Chaldees, and it's everywhere. In fact, we're told that Abram's family, even though they may have been believers, just like you find lots of crazy, mixed up, confused Christians today that have blended all kinds of Christianity and paganism, you probably had the same thing there. But Abram, it seems, has a, is positive to doctrine and has a focus on the truth, and we'll see Uh, basis for that as we go along second he is to leave his family this isn't just his immediate family but it has to do with his extended family, his clan his um, uh, Molodot which has to do with his his extended relations and then uh, third he is to leave his father's house So this has to do with his immediate family. So the uh, Molodot has to do with the extended family. Father's house is his immediate family. Now what we see is that you have three specific commands related to separation for Abram. But when he responds, Abram simply follows stage one. He gets out of the country, leaves Ur, and he heads north to Haran. But he takes his father with him, and he takes his nephew Lot, so he isn't completely obedient to the Lord. Now, that's not unusual. I pointed that out last time. Most of us are incomplete in our obedience. There's this transition here. And one of the things I've been emphasizing as we go through Genesis is that these Events are not simply historical events. They're not just nice stories. they're not just biographies. They're not just to help us to understand and appreciate certain individuals, but they have to do with teaching specific doctrines and unfolding certain doctrines historically as we go through the book of Genesis. We saw creation, which talks about the essence of God. In the first three chapters, we see a biblical view of creation or nature. We understand who man is in the image of God, what happens to nature and man as a result of the fall. We're introduced to foundational concepts of salvation. We get to uh, the Noahic flood that focuses on judgment and salvation and grace. And here the shift in Abraham is going to be on faith, justification, and God's provision of a Savior historically. And what we see here is how faith... In Abraham, faith is strengthened in Abraham. Because when we start off here in Genesis chapter 12, Abram hears a command from God, but he is incomplete or partial in his obedience. Now, as we will see from our, uh, when we look at Hebrews 11 a little later on this evening, we'll see that Abraham is not an immature baby believer at this point. There are certain things that he understands about the plan the purpose of God. He knows and he obeys God when he leaves Ur. He's obeying God because he understands that there is a city built without hands. In other words, he's at a point where he is perceiving that his, he is making present-time decisions based on uh, his future destiny. So we call that a personal sense of an eternal destiny. He's reaching spiritual adolescence. But in chapter 12, he is partial in his obedience. And when we look at the outworking of, of God's, or the outworking of God in his life, in chapter 13, or in chapter, well, after, actually in chapter 12, you see the removal of his father through death, and that's when he moves on beyond, beyond, uh, I smell that heater coming on now. Something's burning. Okay he was his his father is taken out and he leaves Haran and heads down to canaan finally and he still take lot takes lot with him but then in chapter 13 lot is removed so god works with us where we are that is a crucial principle of grace god doesn't meet us where we ought to be he meets us where we are and this is part of how we deal with people in and um impersonal love for all mankind. We have to deal with people in terms of where they are, their own failures, their own flaws, their own sin nature, and not necessarily where they ought to be or where we want them to be. And that's part of grace orientation and its application and impersonal love for all mankind. Uh, God starts off dealing with Abraham. His faith is partial. And we see God take Abraham through various tests Various situations. There's an increased relationship with God. Abraham becomes known as the friend of God. And then when we come to Genesis chapter 22, we see sort of the apex of Abram's spiritual growth. And God appears to Abram and says, I want you to take your son, your only son, the one that's the child of the promise that all this was all about, all this separation, all this movement... Everything is about the seed, this promised son. I want you to take him up to Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham says, okay, Lord, I'm on my way. And immediately he immediately packs his bags, and he's on his way, and he takes uh, Isaac with him up to the mountain, and there is no hesitancy whatsoever. You see the, what has happened to Abraham's faith, to his ability to function on the faith rest drill. He's gone for incomplete partial obedience taking halting steps to where he has this tremendous example of trust in God in Genesis chapter 22 as he demonstrates that he has reached spiritual maturity that's the progress we all go through and so as a result of teaching about faith we're going to focus on two elements actually in Abraham the one is faith in relationship to justification because he becomes the standard example in the New Testament for justification by faith alone. And then faith in terms of the faith rest drill as it applies to sanctification. That is experiential sanctification, our spiritual growth, and our spiritual advance. Now last time we talked about the fact that if we're going to advance spiritually that entails the doctrine of separation I went through various points on the doctrine of separation but the one thing I want to come back and and emphasize again in terms of review is that we have to be careful to avoid a distorted concept of separation separation has to do with ultimately with separation from sin and last time I pointed out that there are concentric circles of application in the Christian life. And it starts with self, and it starts with our own sin nature. And we have to learn to separate from from the sin in our own life. And Romans 8, 7 and following talks about the fact that we're to be putting to death, and death in the scriptures always separation, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. This also involves separation from the world. That doesn't mean leaving the world. It doesn't mean isolating yourself in monastic communities like they do in so many churches. And I pointed out last time that that as you build these mega churches, you know, they go in and they're building their racquetball courts and they have bowling alleys and gyms and... And some even have Starbucks. Well, I heard just yesterday about a church out on the West Coast that's got a subway in the church now. So how worldly can you get, huh? So they're trying to separate from the world, and they're just bringing the products of the world. I mean, it's a screwy system. Everybody's thinking is all messed up. But that's not what separation from the world means. It means to quit thinking like a pagan. It means to think biblically not just in terms of the content of your thought, but the structure of your thought. And so there is a call to separation uh, from the world, from uh, the sin nature first of all, from the world, and this is going to affect, uh, as we do that, it's going to have some effect perhaps on family, friends, and social life. Because what begins to occur to us despite the fact that we may truly enjoy friendship of some people that aren't believers, we realize that they can become a distraction in our own life. And as you grow up you realize that there are some friends that you've had since you were a kid and somewhere along the line you just realize they get in the way of your Christian life. They may be old friends but they haven't gotten it together their, their priority isn't same as your priority and you have to make those decisions and that usually comes to play sometime in your late teen years to your your 20's but it goes through the rest of your life because we always can see that there are some of our friends that just don't quite get it and after a while we know they just sort of become a distraction in our life happens with family members we can't get rid of them quite so easily but uh, sometimes you only see them at Christmas and Thanksgiving or one or two other events, and you have certain responsibilities there, but you do not have to uh, necessarily be so enmeshed in a pagan family that it's a distraction to you. Remember, once you get married, you're to leave father and mother and go your own way. You still honor them, but that doesn't mean that every time they say jump, you ask how high on the way up uh, either. So there's separation there, and then in terms of a broader sense, in terms of the culture at large and various cultural influences. And that, those are decisions that are made by each individual believer. There are some believers who may decide that, that oh, it's just a distraction for them in the Christian life to, to go to movies or to watch television or listen to radio or music, and that's their problem. You know, maybe that's something in their sin nature. And then there are others, and that's not a problem or a distraction. Where you always slip into is this element, this false separatism, uh, that says, you gotta, you can't go to movies, you can't watch television, uh, you can't, um, do these things. I remember when I was, uh, I guess I was in high school, first time I ran into this, there were, I was working at a Christian camp in central Texas, and there were, uh, Kids that were coming down from a school in Grand Rapids called Grand Rapids School, of the Bible of M- Bible and Music, and they um, they came down to council and to work, and they were so surprised because they'd come down to Texas, and most everybody who worked at the camp was uh, grace oriented, and we would have Saturday night off. We'd drive into Austin, we'd go to the drive-in, go to a movie, go out to eat. And These kids couldn't watch even watch television. They couldn't watch Sesame Street, at at uh, they called it Grizz Boom from the initials. They couldn't watch even watch Sesame Street or the news on television, much less go to a movie or hold hands or go on a date, unchaperoned date, and they just couldn't believe all the things that we did, and they they realized what real freedom was. So uh, the you know a lot of legalistic Christians just automatically say if I can't handle it, you can't either and that's nothing but imposing your problems on somebody else. Uh, How you separate from the culture around you is between you and the Lord. You have to deal with your own sin nature, and you have enough to deal with there. You don't need to be imposing your problems and hang-ups on somebody else. Some other people can do things you can't, and you can do things they can't. The other problem that you get into or false application of the doctrine of it's to relate this to the doctrine of privacy. Separation doesn't have anything to do with the doctrine of privacy. Separation in Scripture has to do with separating from those people, circumstances, and cultural things that are a distraction to your Christian life. It doesn't have to do with the fact that, that you separate from other believers so that uh, you don't get uh, involved in their life. See... This is part of the body of Christ. We are, by virtue of being baptized into the body of Christ, members of one another, 1 Corinthians 12 taught us. Remember our study on the body of Christ. You can't uh, isolate that. See, this is another example of how pure human viewpoint paganism, American paganism, enters into our thinking. See, in in the American culture, in American history, you have this, concept called rugged individualism. And there's there's a lot of positive things about the rugged individualism, the can-do spirit of America. But the negative thing is, if you press it too far, you end up, each person is an island unto themselves and you press that into the into the body of Christ, you end up with an atomistic view of the body of Christ. And by atomism, I mean it's from the root word atom, meaning you just separate everybody into their different particles, and each person lives their own Christian life, does their own thing, uh, irrespective of what anybody else is doing in the body of Christ. And that leads to a fortress mentality, it leads to isolationism, And eventually it leads to a mentality that we have the truth and nobody else does. And there's nobody else teaching the Bible. There's nobody else out there teaching the truth. And the next thing you know, you've isolated yourself into a little fortification somewhere. And you start drying up and blowing away in your Christianity. And that's just not biblical. And uh, and so we're to be involved in each other's lives. We're to... Uh, pray for one another, we're to care for one another, we're to encourage one another, admonish one another, teach one another, all of those one another principles that we find in the New Testament. So we have to avoid two distortions on separation. One is the legalistic aspect where you're imposing your standards on everybody else, and the other is relating it to the doctrine of privacy. The biblical concept of separation focuses on separating from those people, events, and circumstances that easily distract us from spiritual growth and occupation with Christ. This is what is embodied in uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 1. You might as well go ahead and turn to Hebrews. We won't spend much time here, but we will be in Hebrews 11 for a while. Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, the Christian life is a race, and sometimes your friends, family, sometimes some of your favorite hobbies are, are nothing more than distractions to your spiritual life. You can see this in some folks who... Uh, who really enjoy certain activities and certain hobbies that are weekend-oriented. And I always face this when I deal with pastors, talk to pastors who are in, let's say, vacation spots, you know, Denver, Seattle, uh, Reno, Lake Tahoe, places where on the weekend people can take off and go skiing, fishing, you know, all the fun recreational things we have in our society. And they have a very difficult time getting folks in those churches to realize that their priority in the Christian life is a local church. It is not your ski vacation, it's not your sailboat, it's not your beach house, it's not your vacation spot. Uh, What's going to matter when it's all over with is going to relate to your spiritual life and your function as a believer priest and as an ambassador, and that has to do with your roles and responsibilities in a local church. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having hobbies and vacations and and doing things on the weekend, but when those things become a point become a, an issue where you can't be involved in terms of your spiritual gift ministering to the local church, then you need to spend some time in prayer about what your priorities are, and what the Bible says about those priorities. And just because you can get a tape, or download an MP3 and stick it on your iPod and and you're getting the doctrine you need, doesn't mean that it's doing you a great deal of good if you are at the same time rationalizing away your involvement in local church. You can't take part of what the Bible teaches about the unique spiritual life of the church age. You know, we always emphasize that. You hear people say, we've got a great spiritual life in the church age. Yeah, well, a key word in that whole phrase is church. Local church, what God instituted. Not you sitting out on a boat with your fishing line in the water every single Sunday and not being involved in a local church. So that happens to people. And it's just a matter of getting your priorities straight and realizing that, that that's part of your spiritual life is your involvement in a local church ministry. Okay, so we need to lay aside the things that easily entangle us, distract us, and the sins that easily get us fouled up in the Christian life. Now, God said to Abraham, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So he has to move out. As we look at the exegesis and at the grammar of Genesis 12:1 and its structure in relationship to the last few verses in Genesis 11, it looks at first glance as if Abraham has been down in Ur of the Chaldees and his daddy Terah decides it's time to move the family out of town, and they head up north to Haran, and they settle in there. And then after Terah dies, then God hears, or that God speaks to Abraham. But that is not what happens. It's It's not that way in understanding the structure of Hebrew narrative. And when we look at the New Testament, we realize that's not what happened. You see, what happens in Hebrew narrative is you're often given an overview and then you come in and you start off with the details. And the overview is that Abraham moves from Ur to Haran. The details are that God first appeared to him and spoke to him in Ur of the Chaldees and Abraham responded. So the reason they moved isn't because Terah decided it was time to get out of Dodge. But because God had appeared to Abram, so turn in your Bibles, keep your place there, and Act. I mean, in Hebrews eleven, and turn to Acts seven. Now, Acts seven is is Stephen's challenge to the legalistic Sadducees and Pharisees in Jerusalem. He takes it to them, and he just gets right in their face and stands nose to nose and toe to toe with them, and just tells them exactly what has gone wrong in their spiritual life, and what their problems are. And typically, whenever somebody, and notice, and he does this in love, you know, this is another example of what real love is, not that much emotional garbage most Christians talk about in terms of love. And the result is that because he deals with the legalists in terms of love, they stone him, and he dies. But he gives us a picture of what happened with Abraham, in the first few verses of his discourse. So we read in verse 1, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And then he begins to respond. He says, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Of course, at that point he was still Abram. Before he dwelt in Haran. So he says, Brethren and fathers, he's polite. He is not being... Uh, Impolite or disrespectful in his in his challenge to them, he calls them brethren and those who are elders among them. He deals with the term of respect, terms of fathers, and he says, "Listen." A present active, I mean, an aorist active imperative meaning, "Listen now." It's a the aorist imperative emphasizes the uh, immediacy, the priority of a, of a command. So he says, "Listen." And then he will, he's going to review. He's going, he's, he's indicting them for their legalism, for their lack of grace orientation, their negative volition to God. And he's going to start with Abraham. He says, the God of glory, which is a, a circumlocution. The Jews don't pronounce the name of God, so he is going to refer to him by his attribute. The God of glory, or the glorious God, it's an adjectival genitive, the glorious God, Appeared to our father Abraham, and here we have the word "appear," is the Greek verb harao in an aorist passive indicative. The aorist is simply a uh, constitutive aer- uh, aorist, which refers to the past event in terms of its entirety, without reference to its uh, beginning, its progress, or its ending, and it is a uh, an aorist in in. Uh, excuse me, the passive voice looks funny because you say how do you passively appear? But the Greek lexicon, the Bauer, Danker, Arnton, Gingrich lexicon notes under point D that the passive voice with Harao has an active sense of becoming visible or appearing uh, to someone. So it's this is the idea that God is always present to us but in this sense he Uh, manifests himself and so this is an Old Testament theophany now what is a theophany it's from the combination of two Greek words theos and phoneo theos t-h-e-o-s is the word for God and phoneo p-h-o-n-e-o uh, is the word for to appear. And here this means an appearance of God, but it's not God the Father, it is God the Son. And theophanies in the Old Testament do not relate to appearances of God the Father, but God the Son. God the Father never appeared to anyone. Only God the Son appeared. We have passages such as John one eighteen. It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So the first God is the Father. No one has seen God the Father at any time. The only begotten God, that is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has exegeted Him, exegeted, oh, there, He has explained Him. So the only begotten God is Jesus Christ. So that's who was seen in the Old Testament. That's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. All of these manifestations in the Old Testament, such as the angel of the Lord in Genesis sixteen seven, and Genesis 22, 11 to 18, Genesis 24, 7 and 40, and many others are all appearances of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And so it is the uh, second person of the Trinity that appears to Abraham in Mesopotamia. So we go back to Acts 7.2. Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Not in Haran, which is up in Syria, but down in the lower Mesopotamian valley uh, near Ur the Chaldees. Before... He dwelt in Haran. I do not know why this keeps popping up like this. Y'all want a weather report? Okay. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Abraham before he left. This tells us that the threefold command, uh, the command there to uh, leave Ur the Chaldees with the threefold promise of land seed and blessing came when he's still back in Ur. The verb there, when it says the Lord said in Genesis twelve one, is a uh, tense in the Hebrew that should be translated with a in a with a completed sense. The Lord had said to Abraham to leave the land uh, and to leave his relatives and go to a land that I will show him. This is what is quoted in Acts seven verse three. The result is, Acts 7, 4, Then he, Avram, came out of the land of the Chaldeans, out of Ur that is, and dwelt in Haran. So why does he move? He moves because God spoke to him. God gave him a specific body of revelation. God gave him content. Now that's important. We'll come back to it before we're done. He gave him content. He's not just moving out because he felt like the Spirit was moving him. He didn't wake up one morning and said, you know, things don't feel right here in Ur anymore. I just don't have a sense that this is where God wants us. I don't have a peace that passes all understanding. So I've been out contemplating my navel all morning, and I've got a little liver quiver, so I think it's time to move on and we'll go someplace else. No, there is a specific body of revelation given to Abraham by God. And he goes to Haran, and, and then Stephen says, And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him, he being God, moved him, Abraham, to this land in which you now dwell. So that's the focal point. Okay, uh, verse 5 of Acts 7. And God gave him no inheritance in it. Now, what do we mean by inheritance? We've studied this in the past. The concept of inheritance comes out of the Old Testament, and this is one of the first places to to understand it it is the greek word here kleronomia k l e r o n o m i a kleronomia and it's when we think of the word inherit We think of receiving something from someone who has died. What do we receive? We receive certain possessions. And this is really the core idea in inheritance is the idea of a possession. It's the idea of ownership. It is the idea of having something that is one's own. And so in Acts seven five, Stephen emphasizes the principle that God gave him, historically that is, during his, his life, no inheritance. He had no possession in the land. God promised him the land, that the land would be his, but he lived out his life without ever owning. In fact, the only piece of land he owned was the piece of land that came from the uh, from the Hittite that was the burial ground for his wife, Sarah, and then for himself that 's the only thing he actually owned in the land, and because of that, people always talk about him being a nomad and a Bedouin, but he really wasn't. He lived in this pretty much the same place most of the time. He had a pretty permanent fixture. he is not uh, some sort of uh, living some sort of nomadic. Existence, But he doesn't have a possession. He just has, he's just sort of a renter most of his life. But there is the promise that God was going to give it to him. This is uh, in the rest of Acts 7, 5. But even when Abraham had no child, he, that is God the Father, uh, promised to give it to him, that is give the land to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. So here's a reiteration of the uh, two of the aspects of the Abrahamic covenant the land and the seed. Now what is it that enabled Abraham to pack his bags and to move out of his comfort zone in Ur of the Chaldees? He had lived there for approximately 60 to 70 years. We don't know how long he was there. We know he was 75 when he left. Uh, when Terah died and he left Haran. But he was probably in, in Ur the Chaldees for 60 years. This was home. He was very comfortable there. He knew people even though he was living in the midst of a pagan culture. He had, uh, in, worked to a point where he could live there and he was, he was comfortable. And what enables him to pack up everything and go on this journey? That is given to us in Hebrews 11. So turn over to Hebrews Chapter 11, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. This is the key dynamic. Now, Hebrews 11 is often understood as the hall of faith chapter in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of truth to that. It is an emphasis on Old Testament heroes that trusted God and had doctrine in their souls what's often encouraging is you realize how badly most of these guys failed at one point or another in their Christian life. And it's great encouragement for us because these are set forth as an example to us. Not an example of failure, but an example of the fact that we too often fail. But the grace of God is such that, that just as they, these men are praised for those moments, those times in their life when they truly trusted God... And the same applies to us. Now, it starts off with the familiar uh, phrase, by faith, which is simply the dative case of the noun uh, uh, "pistis." It's the dative case of the noun "pistis." Now, here we're making a distinction between the noun and the verb. The verb will emphasize, more than anything, the act of trusting or relying on something. The emphasis is on action, ongoing action or describing actions taken place in the past. Whereas, the noun indicates frequently, not simply the act, but the object the reality, see, faith isn't simply an act of trusting. It's trusting in something, and we'll see this as we go through our study in just a minute. But it's it's not just by means of faith. See, today you often have people who talk about uh, faith is so wonderful. Just believe. Well, believe what? See, faith is uh, 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 the uh, faith always involves an object, whether it's a noun or a verb. that always implies something that is believed. Well, what is believed? What is the object of faith? Is it faith in faith? That's what it is for a lot of people. Just You know, if I just trust in some amorphous, undefined deity that's out there that somehow everything's going to be okay, that um, the idea is that, you know, we'll, we'll survive if we... Uh, it won't. It won't defeat us. Circumstances in life won't defeat us if we just live long enough. Somehow, some way, everything's just going to work out. Uh, work out to the best. And it's just an undefined optimism. Uh, it's a faith in faith as some sort of metaphysical power. And you see this if you watch. Uh, take the time, or waste the time, to watch uh, much that goes for Christianity on the airwaves. Uh, you will see some of these guys with their plastered hair and, and um, all their histrionics and their healing and everything else. And all they're doing is talking about having faith. And they treat faith as if it's some sort of metaphysical power. that God, Even God taps into faith they'll say. Faith is a law. It's a principle of the universe. And you just know how to master this law then you'll be able to accomplish anything and and you'll be able to control uh, your circumstances and environment. And this is nothing more than paganism. And most of what get, passes for uh, Christianity from these televangelists on television is nothing more than, than New Age metaphysics uh, cloaked in Christian verbiage. And it's just as pagan and demonic as... You know, the worst form of secular atheism that you can come up with. The concept of faith for Abraham is not just the act of trusting, but it's what he's trusting in. It is the doctrine in his soul. It's the revelation that God gave him. That's why I emphasize the fact that Abram doesn't just move out because he has some sort of undefined faith in faith. He's not just moving out because he he had the heebie-jeebies one morning, had a little liver quiver, and he knows that God, and he just sort of says, well, it must be God talking. But because God revealed something to him and gave him a mandate to get out and to leave his, his family, his extended family, and his uh, lifelong home and to go where God was taking him. So we read, by faith, that is, by doctrine, the content of faith, the focus of faith, the object of faith that God had revealed to him by faith and trust in God, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. So the very verb obeyed emphasizes the fact that there was something uh, to obey. It's the uh, aorist active indicative of hupakuo. Hupakuo from hupa, the preposition hupa, which is an intensification of kua to hear. And he obeyed. It means he submitted himself to God. Faith means to trust God and do what God says to do. But then you have to make sure it's God speaking. So God had revealed to him. And when God called him to go out to the place he would receive as an inheritance. Now, has Abraham received it as an inheritance yet? No. See, this was one of the sophisticated arguments the Lord Jesus Christ used with the Sadducees to prove there was an inheritance because God said that He, he said, I am the, the, um, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, present tense, indicating that, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. They've been resurrected. And God had promised them this land, but they had never received it. So if God they never received it, and if there was no resurrection, then God would be a liar. But if they're, they are still alive and God promised it to them then that implies a future resurrection so that there will be a fulfillment of God's promise and it's a very sophisticated argument that God used against the sadducées who didn't believe in resurrection remember that's why they were sad you see they didn't believe in resurrection so Jesus is pointing out that that the promise the unfulfilled promise is an, is a an argument and a support and an evidence for future resurrection. So Abraham was called to go out to the land, the place which he would receive as a possession, and he went out not knowing where he was going. He knew that God had spoken to him. Now the only way you know that God speaks to you is to open your Bible and read what the Bible says. You can't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I think God wants me to go to Houston. See, I didn't do that. I sat down and I looked at the Scripture and I said, you know, I've got certain responsibilities and I've got certain circumstances in life and the decision is based on the hard and fast circumstances of life that relate to a biblical mandate. I can't sit here and wake up one morning and say, you know, it's a little cold here in the winter and uh, I'm getting tired of that and uh, I'm getting tired of having to deal with, uh, with all the mess that comes with the snow and everything. That, so, so what? What? You make your decision based on what are known biblical absolutes and mandates. And you're, because that defines your responsibilities. And that's how we make decisions now. It's based on revelation. Same thing with Abraham, except God doesn't appear to us and speak to us face to face like he did with Moses or with Abraham, but because, but through the Word of God and knowledge of the principles of the Word of God. So, uh, He appears to Abraham, gives him direct divine guidance. So Abraham goes out, but he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know the ultimate destination. He just knows it's time to leave, and so he starts down the road. Verse 9 says that by faith, that is, by the uh, application or trust in the doctrine that he's received, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country. In other words, he knew it would be his, but it wasn't his yet. He wasn't to live, now here's an interesting point of doctrine, he wasn't to live today as if he were already the king or ruling uh, ruling royal authority in the millennial kingdom. Now why is that important? Because that's what those charismatics are doing with name and claim it stuff. That's why at the very core of their whole concept is this idea that we're in a present form of the kingdom. Well, if you're in the present form of the kingdom, you can act like you have that kind of authority. But if we're not in the present form of the kingdom, if we're in the church age, and if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're like Abraham. This is going to be your inheritance, but it's not now. So you don't act like you own it now. It won't be yours until the return of the millennial kingdom. So Abraham had to live his life in light of eternity, the same as you and I, we live today in light of eternity with our focus on where God is taking us and in preparation. So he dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So he recognizes that he is in a uh, temporary circumstance. And then verse 10, for what's, we get his motivation for, that is because, giving us the reason Behind his his life, uh, his decision, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now this city wasn't there. This city is the new Jerusalem. This city was not present during his lifetime. This city is not coming until the future. This city is not there until the millennial kingdom. So he is focused on the future and making decisions on the future in light of uh, uh, the present. Now, question. How did Abraham know about this city that has foundations? Whose builder and maker is God? Genesis 11, is it there? Genesis 10. Is it 9? Is it an 8? It's not there. What does that tell us? That tell, tells us that there was some sort of, and I'm overstating it a little bit, some sort of Noahic or Adamic Bible. I don't think it was necessarily a canon of Scripture. I'm just using the term generally. But there's some body of revelation that was known to Abraham, to Noah, to Enoch who walked with God before the flood that, that isn't present for us today. We don't know some of the things that they knew. But obviously Abraham knew some things that aren't included in the, in the Pentateuch. Moses doesn't reveal to us. Uh, the basis for Abraham's knowledge about God and the specific things that Abraham knew about the plan and the purpose of God. We also get hints from the book of Jude when he quotes the apocryphal book about Enoch that apparently Enoch knew some things related to prophecy and eschatology that aren't given to us in Genesis. We don't know how these guys knew what they knew. Genesis doesn't tell, even tell us that they knew these things then. But New Testament passages give us hints that these guys really had a body of, uh, of revelatory knowledge, of uh, what we can call the Noahic Bible, that isn't available to us today. And it was on that basis that they lived their Christian life. So he knew there was a future, and he knew what that future was. He's not just stumbling around. He has an understanding of dispensations, and he has an understanding of eschatology. Okay, now let's stop here a minute and go to the basic issue that we've seen throughout this, and that is the walk by faith. This is an example of walking by faith. Abraham doesn't know where God's taking him, but he knows that to fulfill his responsibilities as a believer in the Old Testament, he has to leave Ur and go forward. And then God is going to provide for him along the way. There's nothing that Abraham is going to encounter that God didn't know about in eternity past and make provision for. We're going to see that Abraham is going to run into a famine. Now, did God know about that in eternity past? Yes. Did God make provision? Yes. What did Abraham do? Well, Lord, I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to go down to Egypt. Time and again we see Abraham learn lessons the hard way just as we do. But we know that when we're obeying God, God's always going to make provision. This is a name that we learn about God in the Abrahamic narrative, uh, Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh Yireh, which means God provides no matter what happens in our life. God is always going to provide what we need for our spiritual sustenance and our spiritual growth. And the basic mechanic for walking in the Christian life is that we walk by faith. Now as we look at this, I want to break it down by understanding the basic meaning of the word faith. First of all, we have uh, a couple of different words that are used in the New Testament related to faith. They're all based on the same same root. The first is the noun pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S. This is used as an attribute used as a description or an adjective, and indicates reliability and trustworthiness. That which is uh, dependable, which which has integrity. For example, Titus 2.10, Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. See, their faith is used in the sense of reliability, dependability, or integrity. That, that as a believer we should show all integrity, dependability. It comes from faith. It comes from our knowledge of doctrine and application of doctrine. Another passage where it's used this way is in 2 Thessalonians 1.4. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance in faith. See, it's talking about really the result of their trust in doctrine, which produces dependability and integrity. So the noun pistis is sometimes used in that sense of reliability, faithfulness, or integrity. A second way in which it's used is the idea of, of the action. It means faith. It means confidence. It means trust. It means that that we recognize and accept Bible doctrine. So in the active sense it has that sense of uh, of trust or reliance upon something. So we can break it then we can break that sense down that sense of trust and reliance we can break that down into three subcategories. Trust or the act of trust or reliance three subcategories. The first is in the arena of saving faith. The faith that is operational at the instant of salvation is a faith or a trust that has as its object the cross. The work of Christ on the cross, the salvation for us. It's used this way in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that is, trust in the cross, and not of works, lest any man should boast. Second way in which it's used is post-salvation faith rest drill. The basic mechanic for how the believer grows and matures. And it means to be, to take that faith. Here it's the object's not the cross, it's still trust, but the object is now the revelation of God. What we refer to as Bible doctrine. We're going to trust the promises of God, the principles given in the revelation of God. And, in, and this is the basis for the faith rest drill, where we look at the first stage, which is mixing our faith with promises. The second stage is we draw from those promises various uh, rationales or reasons for trusting God. And then third, we draw from those rationales doctrinal conclusions and apply those to the situation. All of this has to do with that active sense of trusting God in our post-salvation Christian life or Christian growth. Then we have sort of a passive meaning to faith. Faith. It's not the act of believing, but it is focusing on what is believed. It's focusing on the content or the object of faith. In other words, the, the doctrines that we believe. It's used this way in Galatians one twenty three, When it is referring to Paul himself, he says, but only, only they kept hearing, that is the other believers after Paul's conversion, They kept hearing, quote, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. He's preaching the doctrine. He's preaching the body of belief that he once tried to destroy. This is the sense that we have here in Hebrews 11. It's not just the act of faith. It's what is believed. It's the doctrine, the body of doctrine. So what the basic mechanic for these men is that they're trusting a body of doctrine. It is by the doctrine they believe. We could paraphrase it that way. By the doctrine they believe, they did certain things. Faith resulted in action. By the doctrine Abraham believed, he obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By the doctrine he believed, he dwelt in the land of promise. See, it's not just by doctrine. It is belief in that doctrine. It's trusting that doctrine. Uh, both senses are there. Now, the second thing I want to say, thats all, all I've said so far is just to deal with the etymology of faith, the, the words that are used. The, the object of faith at salvation. Point number two, the object of faith at salvation is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But point number three, the object of faith for the spiritual life are the promises and the principles of Scripture. The promises of the Scripture and the principles of Bible doctrine. That's the function of growing up. So we have to know promises. We have to know principles. You don't know them just by sitting at home. You need to memorize the promises and store them in your soul so that they're there when you need them and when you can apply them. The psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against Thee. So that indicates that one of the mechanics for putting to death the deeds of the flesh, Romans 8, 7, is that you have promises in your soul that you can call upon and claim when you're tempted to sin. So faith then focuses on a body of doctrine, revealed revealed content. And this is what happens with Abraham. This is how he is able to go forward and to advance in his spiritual life is because God speaks to him, gives him specific content, specific direction, and he trusts in that even though he can't see where it's going. See, this takes us to 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, I want to show a parallelism here. We walk by means of faith. Is that talking about the fact that we walk by means of believing, or do we walk by means of what we believe? Let's look at the parallel. We walk by means of sight. Okay, when you're talking about your everyday empirical life, you walk by means of sight. Okay, here's your eye okay and the there's an action here called seeing but your seeing focuses on an object for your sight you're driving down the road and a 5 year old runs out in front of you you hit the brakes do you hit the brakes because you are able to see or do you hit the brakes because of what you see? You hit the brakes because you're able to see, but because of what you see. See, we, when, we, when Paul is saying we walk by sight, it's a circumlocution. He's saying we, we walk by means of what we see. So when we take that and we go back to the parallelism in the analogy of faith to sight... If sight is really talking about what we see, then faith is also talking about what we believe. It is not faith in faith. It is the content of our faith, which is Bible doctrine, the Word of God. We walk by means of what we believe. And it is knowing the Word of God. It is this body of content, of revelation, of promises, of principles, of procedures, of mandates, of prohibitions and we live our life step by step on the basis of what we believe that is what is revealed in the word of god this is what enabled abraham to move from spiritual uh adolescence in genesis 12 to spiritual maturity in genesis chapter 22 did he make mistakes along the way you bet he did do you make mistakes along the way sure big mistakes Sometimes, but God's grace is always there so that if we're still alive, God still has a plan for our life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by what it means to walk by means of faith, to trust you, to understand your word. Father, we pray that as we study these things, as we reflect upon what we've learned, as the Holy Spirit uses it and brings it back to our memory We pray that we would apply these things and that we might advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.